3: To claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. DGW report prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
4: Hello and welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket and the second in our series of groundbreaking events in the game, well the ones that have made the most difference in the last 50 years or so to how the game has evolved. No one of course knows the impact of this terrible coronavirus pandemic will have on the short, medium or long term future of the game, we know at the moment lots of players are trying to keep themselves busy with all sorts of quite innovative activities at home with fitness videos and and trying to practice as much as they can within the limitations of what they've been able to do. We don't know when cricket's going to start again, but we're going to try and provide you with as much cricket discussion in the coming weeks while we wait for the game to resume. And if you enjoy this podcast, please tell someone else who might like it as well. And also, by the way, we are creating a list of the game's most innovative or groundbreaking moments connected to this series, and we'd like you to vote for your favourites over the next couple of weeks so we can find a winner. You can go to www.thecricketer.com for more details.
1: Well, our first programme, which I hope you've listened to, if you haven't, you can still download it. We looked at the impact of Gary Sobers and Yuvraj Singh hitting six sixes in an over in 1968 and 2007. The 40 over John Player League followed in England in 1969 with all the world's top players involved. The IPL followed in 2008, again, with all the world's top players involved. In this episode, we look at another event that had huge consequences for the development of the game. We're talking World Series cricket. We'll hear from two players who played in it, Dennis Amos and Barry Richards. We'll also hear how it led to the wearing of helmets. And Sam Billings tells us how it affects the modern player well the first match of world series cricket was played on the 2nd of december 1977 in sydney between australia and the west indies not many spectators actually turned up to watch so how did a tournament that was not only shunned by many people to start with but was also loathed as well when it was announced change the face of cricket forever and what were those changes
4: Before we go into those questions, it's just worth uh, painting a picture of the state of cricket, especially in Australia in the mid-70s. This was round about 1976, actually, when Kerry Packer, he was the son of Sir Frank Packer, a media tycoon who owned many TV stations and newspapers and had then given his empire to his son Kerry when he died. And Kerry's determination was to try and get cricket onto Channel 9, which was the the packer channel. Uh, So he went to the Australian Cricket Board and he tried to buy the rights to all Australian cricket for Channel 9. That was in 1976. He was immediately cast away by the Australian Cricket Board, who were quite happy with the arrangements. And of course they were happy because they owned the rights and... They didn't really play the players very much at all. In fact, at the time, some of the Australian players were only earning around about 200 Australian dollars a test match. That was the likes of Dennis Lilly and Rod Marsh and so on. To keep solvent, they had to actually have other businesses. In fact, Dennis Lilly had his own cleaning company and other players actually had other part-time work to to keep them going. So very much the players were interested in this new development. And Kerry Packer went about recruiting players by signing up Ian Chappell, who just resigned as Australian captain, and Tony Gregg, who was currently captain of England, to go out and buy some world-class players from around the globe, offering them 25000 Australian dollars a man for three years. So you can see they were very tempted by that offer. Now, it'd be quite interesting just to hear a bit of Tony Gregg himself talking about how and why he got involved in World Series cricket in the first place.
0: It was a very interesting time because at that time, the BBC in the UK had cricket. Uh, and the ABC, the, the more conservative non-commercial stations were perceived to be the ones that should cover the game. People couldn't get their heads around the fact that there should be a commercial in a cricket match. And that that was very strange, because really, cricket is the perfect game for a commercial, because there is this pause between overs. <clears throat> so Gary P- Packer saw this. Uh, he went and made an offer for cricket, and... Um, the board knocked him back. He offered more money than uh, they, uh, they thought they'd ever get, but they still knocked him back because they were worried about the way commercialisation of cricket would go. And um, as a result of that, he decided, right, oh, well, I've got to go and get my own cricketers because they won't let me in. And we, of course, at the time, were being badly abused in terms of payments. Um, the grounds across England were full, um, certainly in places like India and other places, still packed houses. And we were getting paid a, an absolute pittance. So it wasn't hard for Kerry Packer to come to someone like me and say, uh, look, uh, can you pull together the 16 best cricketers in the world? And I did. It took me five minutes, really, to jump on an airplane, to go to the West Indies and uh, to go around the world, pick up the best players in the world. And that that was how it started. And, uh, of course, there was a compromise soon after that because I think people realised once the lights went up, we started playing in coloured clothing, that there was more to cricket than uh, simply, you know, uh, a red ball and white clothing.
4: So Tony Gregg recruited th- his England colleagues: Alan Knott, Bob Woolmer, Derek Underwood, all from Kent, and Dennis Amos and John Snow uh, recruited to play in the in the World Eleven part of this sort of tri-series. And then there were lots of West Indians who were recruited as well, and South Africans and Pakistanis too. So it really was an amazing collection of fantastic players who were all tempted mainly by the money, but I think also by the opportunity to to play a new form of the game where they were going to play in showgrounds because the official Australian test grounds weren't allowed to be used. So they had to play in other grounds which had floodlights. So they were able to play under lights with the white ball and eventually coloured clothing came in as well. And one of the things to say also is that Channel 9 were very distinctive in how they covered the game, particularly their theme tune.
1: well, that's the theme tune that means cricket to Australian fans in the way that soul limbo means cricket to UK fans. I mean, let's be fair about this. Let's get the absolute bottom line. This was about money, pure and simple. It was about Kerry Packer making money for his television station and for the players, it was about making money as well. Great opportunity, for example, for the South African players who were starved of international cricket. Great opportunity for them to play against the best players in the world and make plenty of money as well. Lots of them played in in county cricket. But these were relative riches compared to the money they were making elsewhere. And the same for the West Indies players as well. You know, the great West Indian players, Viv Richards, Clive Lloyd, players like that. They saw the opportunity to make more money than they could make playing Test cricket. And the, the other point as well to make is that By playing packer cricket at the start, it wasn't that obvious that they would be excluded from playing for their countries. I mean, And actually, some players did still play for their countries after World Series cricket started. Tony Gregg lost his job as as England captain and he didn't play for much longer. But it, it wasn't totally either or. There were really muddy waters at the start about who was going to play in World Series cricket
4: and what that meant for other cricket around the world. It was totally revolutionary, though, with the way they played with drop-in pitches, under floodlights, at night, with the white ball and eventually with coloured clothing and with this amazing collection of fantastic players from all over the world, the standard was also extraordinarily high. And I spoke to Barry Richards, who was one of the, the sort of founding members of the World Series team that played it in this tournament. He's currently in lockdown in South Africa, but I thought it would be interesting to ask him for his reminiscences about what it was like to play in World Series cricket?
5: Yes, South Africans, don't forget, we, we had nothing. So for us, it was just a great opportunity. I mean, I know Greggy and uh, Greg Chappell, Ian Chappell, those sort of guys had a lot more to lose than we did. So for, for us, it was a no-brainer. It was, it was a, a great opportunity to be on the world stage again, albeit uh, not with the blessing of, of the cricket authorities. But I remember Packer saying to us early on, he said, listen, there's money up for grabs here, yeah, and if I catch you concluding in any way, about sharing any sort of money, uh, I'll sack the lot of you and I'll shut it down. So, and we, he was pretty severe sort of bloke. So, I mean, it was fair dinkum cricket. The blokes were playing hard, they wanted to win i mean and uh, you know, there was a lot of egos at stake because you can imagine 60 of the best players everybody wanted to prove that they were the best and they so in, in many ways were representing their country it's of some sort you know what i mean there was no holding back everybody wanted to win and everybody wanted to to beat the rest it was just that's the way it was played and there were a lot of innovations came in our colored, colored clothing came in we the first night cricket and there was you know the the, the i faced the very first ball in night cricket ever. And um, you know that was a uh, you know it was eminently forgettable because it was from Lenny Pascoe, not Dennis Liddy, funny enough. And it was uh, just it was it was down the leg side. No nothing nothing actually transpired. You know so that that was uh, was was one of the things that happened. But but you know the lights weren't all that good in those days. The how you know, the lux factor was pretty low, and um, you know the, the the spillage around the ground was huge. So you know facing Andy Roberts, we we just didn't even know when to have the breaks. Uh, for the first night games which was in the second year but you know Packer said well we normally finish at six so we'll make it six to seven you start again at seven but it wasn't in places like Sydney it wasn't all that dark so <laughs> it was uh, you know a lot of interesting experiences went, went went with it it was hard cricket yours. it was really tough cricket and you know everybody wanted to do well there was just no question about you know what they try to do you know the, the guys who were in the main, you know, the, the ACB, which is the Australian Cricket Board and, you know, all the, the MCC and people like that who didn't want Packer and hated Packer, kept trying to say it was a circus, it was organised and it was stuff like that, but that was all to try and, you know, to try and make their cricket a little bit more palatable to, to spectators. So they they were having a go and say, they, they kept they kept using the word circus, which uh, it did upset Packer, I must admit, because, you know, that, that was the... The, the connotation was it was you know it was all light hearted and and, and it was all organised before you went on the field and nothing could be further from the truth.
4: How did, do you think, uh, looking back on you know World Series cricket overall, how do you think it changed the game and play and the players?
5: The television rights became much more valuable in, in almost instantly. Uh, and and you know the guys who, who you know we, whenever we got on planes in those days the, the the administrators used to turn left and we used to turn right uh, and so you know it was all about them and the gin and tonics and you know we, we're running the game and we'll tell you what to do and all that and Packer Packer the uh, Packer cricket changed that that just almost immediately with the television rights everybody became aware that um, you know the, that that the cricketers were were the television rights and that they ought to be paid a lot more. I mean, our, our contracts in that point in time was $25,000 a year, six months. Uh, and when you think that, I, I started off at Hampshire with £900 pounds for six months. So, I mean, they, they, that's when, you know... And Packer, to his credit, I mean, he made television embrace cricket and cricket embraced television in that era. I mean, they subsequently got it a lot better. And that's, that's what's driven the, the kind of wages that the guys get now. I mean, I'm not sure how long it would have taken. And ultimately, I guess it would have uh, come to television rights, but it, it might have taken a lot longer had Packer not come around.
1: Well, that's Barry Richards, who was one of the great players at the time in the 1970s, of course, didn't have the chance to play very much Test cricket because of the South African ban, their exclusion from
4: Test match cricket. This was his great opportunity, really, to play and showcase his skills. And in fact, he took it too, because if you look at his average, he averaged close to 80 in the five Super Tests that he played, including a a double hundred in one game. And this was against the, the crack, Australian attack featuring people like Dennis Lilly, Nobody averaged more than about 60. So, you know, he really did show his elite skills in, in this tournament and he was near the end of his career then as well.
1: The first season of World Series cricket wasn't a great success. Not that many people turned up to watch. And I think there were people within Kerry Packer's entourage who were worried about whether this was going to work. The second season, though, was a success. And one of the reasons for it was they were able to play at established venues like the Sydney Cricket Ground and in November 1978 there was a a one-day match between Australia and the West Indies a crowd of 44,000 turned up to watch and then they thought right this is going to work because the the, the bottom line of this was that as I said it was all about money and it was all about Kerry Packer getting the rights to Australian international cricket the, the traditional form of the game test cricket one day international cricket and once the Australian Cricket Board saw that people were turning up to watch Kerry Packer's matches, then they were in a really difficult position. And then later in that Australian summer, the Super Test Final, the SCG between Australia and a World Eleven team, drew 40,000 spectators over three days. The sixth. Ash's test in that same summer between Australia and England only drew 22,000 people to the SCG over four days of play. So the ACB, they saw which way the wind was blowing and eventually they they caved in. They gave Kerry Packer what he wanted. But in the meantime, he produced such a a revolution in the game. I mean, he'd really ruffled the the feathers of the cricket establishment all around the world, not just in Australia, but all around the world as well. But he got what he wanted and that Changed the game, he got what he wanted money won for Kerry Packer but the the offshoot for everybody else and the way the game uh, developed was enormous, you mentioned things like day-night cricket, coloured clothing and players' pay
4: Yeah, players' pay not not least uh, in England where uh, a a player's salary for a test match went up from £200 pre-Packer to £1,000 a test match in the, the late 1970s, the Uh, insurance company Cornhill were brought in to sponsor Test Cricket and the whole thing was totally transformed and players were properly paid and in a way the the whole impact of of World Series Cricket was a bit like the the impact of the IPL has been over the last 10 years where A it's brought all these brilliant players together to play a new format of the game and B it's catapulted their salaries into the ether which has made it quite tough for uh, some of the international teams to keep hold of their players actually with so many uh, other tempting uh, places to go and play T20 cricket or whatever but it do- it does show that that somebody you you, you almost need somebody uh, an entrepreneur you know somebody with that vision to come in and change the game and it was Kerry Packer in the 1970s and as we saw last week's program it was Lalit Modi in 2007
1: yeah, it would be almost like, i just trying to think what a modern parallel would be like. It would be almost like uh, a major television company somewhere in the world, perhaps, say, South Africa, possibly, you know, Sky in the UK, buying up all the top players, all the top Indian players as well. I think that's the crucial thing. You think of something like the IPL, the IPL jealously guards its Indian players, and then they're not allowed to play in T20 competitions around the world. But it was a bit like a television station buying up the likes of Virat Kohli and Jaspit Bumrah, all the top Indian players and some of the Australian players and say all the England players as well. Say, you know, if, if, if it was, say, Sky and putting on a, a rival tournament in the summer to traditional test matches in England. That, that, that was what it was like. In a way, it was even um, more revolutionary then than it would be now because, of course, the players are so well paid now, they would be reluctant to to go along with it. But because they weren't being paid very well then, it was almost a no-brainer for for most of them. And there were a few that didn't go because they felt it was a bit risky and would they be banned and they had other commercial interests and so they they stuck with traditional cricket. But for for most players, it was such a a draw to go and play in, in World Series cricket And the players' pay, as a result of that, are utterly transformed. And you're you're right, this is what we see now in in IPL. It's transformed at again.
4: Actually, it's interesting looking at one of the teams that that Barry Richards played in the the World Series team, the World XI. I looked down the list of the players, and, and the batting order was Barry Richards and Gordon Greenwich, who, of course, opened the batting also for Hampshire. At number three, Vivian Richards. At number four, Clive Lloyd. Number five, Asif Iqbal, who many people won't necessarily think of as a world-class player. He played for Kent for many years in Pakistan, but he was a a very ingenious batsman, actually, who who had his own talents. Uh, Number six was Tony Gregg, who had uh, all-round figures which were actually better than Ian Botham's. His batting average was better, his bowling average was slightly inferior, but overall the difference between the two was was bigger than, than Botham's. Uh, then Imran Khan at number seven and Alan Knott at number eight. So it was a phenomenal batting order backed up by both Derek Underwood and Andy Roberts in the bowling ranks. So it was a phenomenal team that the uh, World Eleven turned out in World Series cricket.
1: So the, the players were there to watch. I'm not surprised the crowds came along to, to watch them as well. And what about the, the, the impact then? We, we had night cricket. And you know, night cricket, OK, it's not worked everywhere in the world. It doesn't work, I don't particularly well in the UK. But it is such a feature of our cricket now, isn't it? We don't even think about it. D- d- you know, T20 matches in the evening, 50 over matches, uh, test matches even now. The impact of playing night cricket, I mean, I mean in Australia, the perfect conditions for, for night cricket, places like South Africa as well. I was there recently and it was just fantastic. Warm evenings, people sitting out on the grassy banks, watching the cricket, absolutely perfect for cricket and we you know we talked about players pay but also just the spectator experience, the way we experience cricket, totally transformed by World Series cricket
4: as well. Yeah, it's been the salvation of cricket, really, being able to put a game on at a time when people can watch, in you know, balmy conditions where in Australia and South Africa in particular, the evenings are warm enough to sit there Uh, For a fairly long time. Uh, Under floodlights, I know that, you know, the the TV executives love the look of cricket under floodlights as well with the coloured clothing. The white ball really sort of stands out very prominently. And, you know, the floodlights and everything just makes everything look incredibly exciting. And, and sort of tantalising for the TV viewer as much as it is to, to the spectator. And, of course, the key thing is, and again, this is where the IPL was also successful, putting the game on at the same time at night when everyone could tune in or t- attend the game themselves. They knew when it was on and it was at a time when you know they were at home from work and they could all gather round the TV together as a family and enjoy the occasion.
1: And coloured clothing as well. I mean, that that took a while, didn't it? There was a lot of, sort of disparaging comments about coloured clothing. The game had been played in in whites. People called it uh, pajama cricket. And the West Indies, for example, in the second season, there were the first season they used whites, and that was actually quite difficult. You know, with white clothing and a white ball and playing cricket at night, it was quite difficult for the players. But then they went to coloured clothing in the second season, and the West Indies actually played in in pink in in. That was their colour, played against Australia, who played in, in yellow. Um, we're, so, we're, I mean, we're so used to it now, aren't we? Um, it, it took a time for, for people to, to latch on to coloured clothing. And actually, you talk about the World Cup. The first coloured clothing World Cup was as late as 1993 in Australia. So 15 years, nearly 15 years after Packer finished before we had a, a coloured clothing day, night, white ball world cup which actually seems extraordinary now doesn't it when you you look back it's amazing it took that long
4: so there we are transformative world series cricket bringing in day night matches under floodlights with the white ball and colored clothing and putting the game on at a time when people can watch it was truly a cricketing revolution
1: So World Series cricket brought in many changes for the future of the game. One we haven't talked about so far, the use of helmets. Helmets being brought in at a time of lethal fast bowlers and World Series cricket had plenty of them.
4: Yeah, that was the catalyst really because certainly bowling had gradually got faster in the 70s. If you think back to the 74-5 series, the famous series in Australia when the Australians leapt Jeff Thompson and Dennis Lilly loose on the Englishman, and all they had for protection then was you know the arm guard, maybe a chest pad. Uh, in David Lloyd's case, of course, he was famously hit in the box, and that didn't help much either uh, when he was hit by Jeff Thompson uh, in a in a test match. So, it, generally, players were pretty unprotected. Then you had the West Indies suddenly emerging with the likes of Andy Roberts, Wayne Daniel, Michael Holding in the, the mid-70s, so it was a pretty hard uh, ask for batsmen to be batting without proper protection. And I think it was then that uh, Dennis Amos, who'd played in that 74-5 series uh, in Australia for England, opening the batting, and he also made a double hundred famously in that test match at the Oval when Michael Holding took 14 wickets on an absolute belter and bowled at the speed of light, and Amos made a double hundred. So he was perfectly capable of handling... All these fast bowlers, but I think he looked at the the list of fast bowlers lined up to play in World Series cricket, uh, having been recruited by Tony Gregg, and he thought, mm, I think probably I need to wear some headgear here. And so he looked into it, and he tells us what happened next.
6: It was funny. I, I met I met a motorcycle helmet manufacturer somewhere on my on my rounds, and uh, that was before Packer. Eventually, I was asked to play for for. Uh, to join Kerry Pack and I, and I thought of these helmets, and we got about 19 of these fast bowlers, I think if you count them all maybe I'm exaggerating a bit but if you count them all there were a lot of them who could all bowl at 90 miles an hour you know the Imran Khans and the Lillys and you've got all the West Indies fast bowlers uh, you've got Garth Leroux. Um so th- there, was, there was a lot there and, and I thought my gosh how are we going to cope in Australia with these bouncy wickets so I, I, I thought of this bloke with a helmet, and I went to see him. And I said, you know, that it's pretty heavy. He said, oh, we can make it with with Kevlar, and which is which is a much lighter material. We can mold it with Kevlar, and we put a po- polycarbonate visor on it. So that's. And I said to Greg, he said, I said, you know, I've got this idea about a helmet. You know, we have got nineteen fast bowlers, and there's a bit of razzmatazz about this, uh, uh, this. Do you think? What do you What do you think? I think. <laughs> we want to. We want to wear. And Greggy, of course, was very keen because he'd been once or twice. So uh, um, he said, "I'll speak to Kerry," and, and, and Kerry came back. He said, "Yeah, love it, love it. Bring it, bring it." So I brought it. And of course, as soon as I saw it, Greggy wanted one. Barry Richards wanted one. Two, one Mushtag, used one, not used one. So straight away we had quite a few of the, the the bigger names uh, wearing this this helmet. But of course, in the first match we had we had four run outs, didn't we? Uh, in the first major match, the, the the sort of test match between the world eleven and Australia, that was at VFL, that was Melbourne. And after three run outs, he said, "You know, I know these these run outs." She said, "I tell you what, they can't hit the calls. There's no holes in the earpieces, you know." So, Notty was the fourth one to be run out, and they sent a, an interviewer down to speak to Notty as he came off the field. He'd still got his helmet on, and this interviewer goes up to, to, to Notty and says, Notty, these helmets, says, oh, can't you hear the calls? And Notty said you will have to speak up, some silly bugger forgot to put holes in the helmet.
4: <laughs> <laughs> brilliant. Great yeah. story, yeah, brilliant story. I, I mean, have you, have you got any uh, idea how much that ch- that has changed the game the introduction of helmets are you aware of the huge transformation that made in the game
6: i wasn't at the time but 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 certainly now and um, everybody said, well, why didn't you paint them? Well, you couldn't paint them, really, because lots of people were, were making helmets, and the, all they had to do was a, 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 adopt it, or adapt it, I suppose. The modern game now with uh, with the, the white ball cricket and T20 cricket, I mean, they play some extraordinary shots, don't they? I mean, they're, they're brilliant. And, uh, you know, you wouldn't be doing the uh, the reverse yeah. sweep, would you, or the, or, or the side or the glide or what? The, or the that ramp, one over the ramp, ramp shot. Yeah. It, the ramp, the ramp. Mm. Without, without a helmet on, would you? So I mm. think it's it's taken it's taken the game to another level. I I honestly I believe that. Yeah.
1: Well, when I started watching cricket, of course, players didn't wear helmets, and now everybody does. What about you? When you came into the game, were you when you went out to bat? Did you wear a helmet?
4: Well, I think it's interesting listening to Dennis Ames there, of course, because he talks about the importance of batsmen, proper batsmen, wearing helmets. But he doesn't really mention tail-enders. And the tail-enders are the most vulnerable of of all players because you've got to go out there and face these fast bowlers. Quite often, fast bowlers are more intent on bowling bouncers to tail-enders because they know they can't handle them than to top-order batsmen. So, actually, in many ways, the tail-enders needed the helmets more than the the top-order batsmen. We didn't have many to go around in in the Middlesex dressing room when I first started, probably... Amongst 11, we probably had six or seven, I'd say. Uh, Not everybody owned their own helmet. And actually, one of my early games, I went out to bat without a helmet against uh, Surrey at the Oval. Sylvester Clark, the fearsome Barbadian, was bowling. And I went out literally bareheaded. And Graham Barlow, who was an opening batsman who was just on his way out, he'd been dismissed, he said, look, don't be an absolute prat, put this on your head. And he gave me his helmet, and I put it on... And third ball, I was hit on the side pieces because these helmets only had little plastic side pieces. They didn't have a visor. But luckily, this bouncer, which I never saw, hit me straight on the side piece, left a very nasty red mark exactly where the ball had struck. But luckily, just where my temple would have been is where the ball struck. And luckily, I didn't feel anything. So, you know, it was very much a a, a period where you weren't sure whether to wear them or not. Uh, But, clearly, soon after that, it became pretty much compulsory, although there were still players, uh, famously Ian Botham, of course, and Viv Richards, who didn't wear them and who were happy to go out and and take the risk. And I suppose it's interesting the the influence that helmets had because I think the tail enders definitely needed them. But to some of the, the top batsmen it wasn't necessarily uh, the, the best thing to have a helmet on because I think it took away the adrenaline, the fear. It actually made people almost overconfident, perhaps almost a bit hubristic, so that they would take on the bouncer when they actually weren't capable of playing the shot. And we've seen, sort of more recently, a lot more batsmen get hit because instead of ducking out of the way or weaving out of the way of bouncers, as we probably used to, uh, they they're more prepared to take them on. The other point about them, of course, is they're
1: they're really awkward to wear. If you grow up not wearing a helmet and then you have to wear one, or you do wear one, it really does take a while to get used to, to batting in a helmet. You know the, just the balance, sighting the ball, just the the whole feel of it. It and of course you play in you play in hot conditions as well. It, it is really sweaty underneath that helmet. It, you know it, it does take. Some time to adapt to to using them. I'm just talking, you know, about club cricket. I mean a lot of people listening to this who who played club cricket. I, I remember times when, you know, if you wore a helmet, people would say, "Oh, he doesn't fancy it." And actually, you, all you're doing is it's sort of protecting yourself. You think, well, you know, this is just my fun exercise at the weekend. The last thing I want is to have a fractured cheekbone, so I can't go to work on Monday. So, you know, it's a it's a really it's really sensible to actually wear a helmet but it was there was a sort of time in club cricket where people sort of question whether you were a coward or not if you know if if you were happy enough to go out and not wear a helmet uh you know it was fine but if you wore a helmet oh this this guy did not like it and you know you you might actually attract a a few more short balls that was that was sort of the way of it in club cricket now of course things have changed so much that it is obligatory you know you you have to wear a helmet and you know, it's been in for youngsters for a, for a very long time now. Everyone's got to wear a helmet and, and it, it's now, you know, everyone who bats now in club cricket has to wear a helmet.
4: Funnily enough, it, it used to be the reverse in county cricket where if you saw somebody come out without a helmet, you that was a red rag to a bull for a fast bowler, actually, and they tried to bowl more bouncers because they thought it was a a. a, a, a it suggested that the batsman was sort of cocky and showing a bit of bravado and you wanted to take him down a peg or two. Uh, I I remember one sort of silly story, actually, at Hove when Middlesex were playing Sussex and Imran Khan was batting and it was a very lively pitch, actually, at Hove. And I was bowling and I was the the fastest bowler that particular day in the Middlesex team and I bowled about seven or eight overs on the trot to, to Imran and his partner and he was wearing a helmet with a visor it was that, I think it was that bright yellow helmet, actually, which, which Imran often used to wear, a very distinctive one. And Phil Edmonds was captain that day, and he said to me, um, I think you'd you better have a blow now. Uh, you have done sort of seven or eight overs. And Imran overheard, and he said, uh, are, you, are you coming off now, Simon? So I said, yeah, yeah, I'm having a blow. OK. So he handed his helmet to the 12th man and put a floppy hat on instead, and uh, deciding just to bat, bat in a floppy. And Edmonds, being a typically sort of quite provocative... Character whispered to me, Have another one then. Now he's taking his helmet off, have another over. So I came on and had another over, and Imran was sort of looking a bit sternly down the wicket at me. I thought you'd finished, you know. But I bowled another over to him, and about second ball, Edmonds goaded me and said, Go on, give him a bouncer. So I gave him a bouncer, and he still kept his floppy hat on because he thought I was only having one more over. And the bouncer made him jerk his head back, and the floppy hat fell on the wicket. And he was out, <laughs> uh, which at the time you thought, oh, great, you know, but he was so furious that he let, he let his wrath wreak havoc later and he took about six or 20 when he bowled, including bouncing me out. So I slightly regretted doing it in the end. So Phil Edwards, saw a quite a
1: canny piece of captaincy in one way, but not so canny in another. Not surprisingly, he didn't
4: captain Middlesex many times after that.
1: I think you can definitely say the helmet has changed the way batsmen play the game, hasn't it? It's it's helped them be more attacking.
4: No, it has, absolutely. I mean, I think back, actually, to the first IPL match, which I happened to attend in 2008 in Bangalore. And on that day, Brendan McCullum really rewrote the the style books that day by the innings he played 158 not out 13 sixes and he was going down on one knee and sweeping fast bowlers over deep square leg ramping them over the keeper's head top edging them totally rewrote the way you batted in one day cricket which I know other players had sort of started to do as well but I think McCullum really stamped his imprint on the way modern batting would evolve from that point onwards and it it was helmets that facilitated the sort of shots that he could play, the the uh, audacity to go down on one knee and almost get his head going forwards towards a fast bowler and sweep a ball off his nose over the keeper's head for six. And a guy who has really perfected that type of shot, is Sam Billings of Kent and, of course, of the England one-day side. He, of course, is one of the most innovative players well-known for his daring ramp shots against fast bowlers, so I thought I'd talk to him about the ultimate benefit of wearing a helmet.
2: Well, you go down on one knee and sweep them over square leg, people bowling at 90 miles per hour, like um, paddle sweeps, reverse sweeps. Yeah, you kind of it gives you that element of fearlessness. I I definitely think it's um, helped the game 100%. Do
4: do you think, is it almost the first thing that you put in your bag, well, after your bat?
2: (laughs) Well, and the other important piece of equipment, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You can't forget that. To be honest, I've never known uh, anything different.
4: Can you imagine batting without one?
2: Uh, again, spin, maybe, but then we sweep. So you don't want a top edge one. I remember doing a practice session. I top edge one into my lip, uh, just doing some underarms. And I thought, why on Why am I not wearing a helmet? Like, just ridiculous. Um, so there was a lot of claret everywhere. So I um, then obviously uh, put a helmet on. Did
4: you start practicing these shots in your in your parents' barn?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, I saw Malloy Loi um, doing it. You remember he did it to Brett Lee. And you think, oh, why why can't I do that? You you see it on TV, and then, obviously, uh, my favourite batsman growing up was A.B. de Villiers, and, and he does it more than anyone. It's all confidence at the end of the day. Um, a shot like that is absolutely all confidence.
4: I get a lot of uh, questions at the moment from kids, um, you know, and their parents as well. Uh, you know, how do we practise cricket in these... Rather unprecedented times, um, unable to go out or anything. Have, have you got any kind of um, little tips about how you might practice if you were a young person
2: <laughs> I, um,
4: with these current restrictions? My
2: girlfriend uh, posted on Instagram the other day a video of me doing exactly what I did at my parents' house when I was on my own, all those kind of years ago tennis ball a wall and you chuck it against and you smack it that's absolutely um what i what i used to do the whole time and you practice different shots with that so you can practice the on drive then you change it up with your feed and you practice the off drive my dad used to just chuck me balls for hours so um it was just on a landing or a corridor or any sort of space that you've got
4: and you put the 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 the, the expensive vases and Light fittings oh, yeah. away, presumably.
2: My my mum learnt pretty quickly that the landing, uh, there was it was just barren, nothing there, so <laughs> it was li- literally just uh, that was a set of stumps, a bat, and a load of uh, tennis balls, which I'm doing right now, as you can probably hear. Excellent, yeah. Sarah reminds me, I broke the lamp the other day, uh, but I got a new bulb, so it's all fine now.
1: Oh, those games of cricket indoors, I used to play them when I was a lad, and play only came to an end indoors when you broke something. That was that was the rule, really. You, you played on until he broke something. I don't think my mum was uh, particularly pleased, but, uh, you know, you, you had to do something, didn't you? And people have to do something in these, these desperate times.
4: Yeah, I mean, we play games uh, at the moment like that as well, although we practise against bouncers because we think it's a bit more entertaining. So we bowl the ball short on the kitchen floor to go up around a batsman's ears and practice weaving or swaying out of the way because my kitchen's is a bit too narrow to play expansive shots anyway, so we sort of practice weaving and vo- avoiding bouncers instead. It is amazing actually when you think back and we talk about the the Packer revolution
1: and it was all the things that it it led to you know the, the day night cricket players pay and colored clothing and the use of helmets it, it is amazing actually when you, when you think back how you know 50 years ago how players didn't wear helmets and now everyone does no one even questions it uh, there were, there were times when people, I think Fred Truman was saying, you know, batsman wearing a, a helmet, absolutely ridiculous. I, I remember watching uh, on YouTube Mike Proctor taking four wickets in five balls. I actually watched it uh, at the time, but I was watching it again on YouTube during a an England-India test match in the, in the test match special box. And Raul Dravid uh, was there with me, we were off air, and he was, he was watching it alongside me. And Proctor was steaming in bowling those big in duckers from from around the wicket and he got rid of richards and greenwich one of his four and five balls and raul dravid was alongside me he said wow and i said yeah it's great bowling he got massive big in duckers and he was causing all sorts of problems he really got the ball to swing from around the wicket and raul said no no not that the fact they're facing it without wearing a helmet
4: yeah, <laughs> Do you mean to say you're one of the 243,000 people who was in the ground that day to see Mike Proctor get four in four? No, it was
1: 243,000 people at Old Trafford in 1971 to watch that match that finished at, at 10 to 9. Not quite as many at, at Hampshire that day. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't there in 1977. I wish I had been, I did, but I did watch it on television. One of the, the great benefits in the 1970s of, of free-to-air cricket... Mm-hmm.
4: Well, that's it for this week. Don't forget you can vote for your favourite groundbreaking moment if you go to www.thecricketer.com. We'll set up a a page and a sort of voting little competition there. So uh, go and have a look at that. Uh, We're going to do more groundbreaking moments that transformed the game of cricket next week. In the meantime, keep safe and I hope you've enjoyed it and thanks for listening. Bye
1: for now.